Every month, the uh, leadership here at New Hope gets together once a month on a Sunday night and prays together about what God's doing here at the church and and His activity among us and where He's leading us. And a month ago, when we were together, we were talking about um, the trip that we'd made to Kenya a year ago. And I was told by one of the individuals who helped orchestrate the trip that I should anticipate that there's a, a certain level of standard of dress uh, among the Kenyan individuals and that you can very easily offend them if you dress inappropriately. And so guys were told no shorts and the gals had to dress in a certain fashion. And um, so I thought, you know, I was dressing up by putting on a pair of dockers and, and a golf shirt. And I ascend the fifth floor of this building and, and I go up to where all the pastors are gathered and I walk through the door and um, to my horror, they're all in suits and ties, okay? And so I kind of just pushed through that and just did the New Hope thing, you know, we're real relaxed. And they were very comfortable, but um, man, do their white teeth smile. I mean, they just, they shine and um, against their very dark African skin, they're just exuberant people. Well, I thought, wow, this is amazing because they're in the Kawangwari Ghetto, which is extremely dirty. We're talking dirt floors in every building, except where the ministry center is at. And so these individuals are coming out of the slums and out of the villages where they serve at, and these men are in white shirts, pressed with ties, with, in some cases, sport coats on. And, and, and I came to find out that in their community, in their villages, an individual who is dressed in, in business attire is greatly respected in the community and revered. And so they always want to put forth the best foot when they're representing Christ to the community. So as I got closer to the pastors throughout the course of the time that I was teaching with them, what I realized is their white shirts were threadbare. It's the only shirt they own. And their ties were completely tattered and wore out. Now from a distance, 20 feet away, it looked great. Well, as we were talking about that in the leadership meeting, we thought, how cool would that be if we could bless those pastors who are just kind of eking out a living by sharing that stuff with them? And I know you guys got like 30 and 40 ties in your closet, okay? Because I have a whole bunch of them too. I know my wife's going to make me sort through them. Now, we're probably going to end up with a gazillion ties. That's okay. Let's just not go short on the glue sticks and the crayons too, okay? So let's make sure that we match that up. But that's where that's coming from. And just know this, guys, that um, some pastor in some village in Kenya is going to be wearing your tie when he's preaching the Word of God. How cool is that? All right, so. All right, we're going to jump back into Ephesians this morning. Um, If you have your Bibles with you, go to Ephesians chapter 4, and um, this is week 10. You guys are moving at breakneck speed, all right? This is good. This is good. We're four chapters in and in only 10 weeks. We've only got two chapters left to go. But in our first first three chapters, we discovered chapters one through three, uh, what God brought about in our lives, what, what he did through us and what he did for us. And in last week, we started talking about how he's encouraging us in chapter 4 and how we're called to carry out this high calling that we've been given. So what we discovered last week is that when God saves us, he transforms us. Now, some of us would say, well, I don't know that I really experienced that transformation. I don't know that I'm feeling all that changed. Well, some people, it happens really fast. Others, it takes years part of that sanctification process. But God promises us that He's creating something entirely new in us. Uh, We were told last week, we learned a a Greek phrase, um, 
The words were kainos katissis. Not that those words matter a whole lot, but the, the meaning behind it. I wonder if anybody here happens to remember kainos katissis. What were the English words that went with that? Original formation, that's right, new creation. We've got this new creation, that's who we are. So according to what we're told in 2 Corinthians 5.17, you'll see this on the screen, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a kainos katissis, a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. So we're going back to our thinking in before the fall of man, the original creation, the original formation, we've been given this new self. That's what Scripture tells us. He's he's created something new in us. So as a result of us being completely new, the old has passed away, the new things have come, He expects that our walk, our conduct, our activities would reflect the fact that we're a new creation in Him. So what we're going to find now in verse 25 of chapter 4 is that Paul's going to get really specific. Up till now, it's been very general terms. But now he's going to really drill down deep, and he's going to give us some basic, specific daily activities. Let's go to verse 25 and see what the first one is. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So the very first specific command we get comes right from God's top ten list from the Ten Commandments. That's a very familiar one. Do not lie. That's what he's telling us right here. Let me, let me remind you of God's Ten Commandments. I, I forgot to do this in the 9 o'clock service, but I bet it's been a while since you've read them. Look with me up on the screen. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Five is honor your father and your mother. Six, you shall not murder. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, that's this one right here. You shall not bear false witness. Now this is kind of odd. Paul's writing to a group of Christians, people who are in a church, and he's telling them, don't lie. Now, doesn't that strike you as different? That he's telling a bunch of church people, you're not supposed to be lying. What are you doing lying? Well, here's the truth. He's got a group of new believers. This Ephesian church, as you learned last week, is made up of pagans. Individuals who came out of a pagan lifestyle. They're new believers in Christ. And they don't know what they don't know. So he's telling them the basics, just like God did with the Old Testament Jews. They'd been under Pharaoh's heel for a long time. They didn't know what it was to interact in community. So God gave them the list of the things that he wanted them to do in order for community to be carried out. What you're going to see Paul doing here is he's going to start bringing forward the Ten Commandments into this passage. So if I'm speaking the truth, I'm I'm conforming words to reality. That's really a, a definition right out of a dictionary. If I'm speaking the truth to you, my words are conforming to reality. Here's a practical example. If I tell you that it's noon, but I later discover that my watch is wrong. I didn't lie to you. I, I was just mistaken. My information was bad. But if I tell you it's noon and I intentionally give you the wrong time so that maybe you miss a meeting or something, I've, I've lied to you. I've discovered as I look through the Bible, when people lie, a liar will even lie about his own lies. But where does that come from? It comes from the father of lies. Jesus said that Satan is the father of lies. And Satan wants you to believe that God is a liar. 
So even a liar will lie about his own lies. Matter of fact, you see in Genesis 3, Satan shows up on the scene. He starts talking with Eve and Adam. What is his first words? Did God really say? Right away, he's beginning to start the lie. He's questioning God's truthfulness, putting God on the spot. So ever since the fall of man, lying and deception are the common character of man. Can you imagine if world leaders today began speaking only the truth? World War III would break out within 24 hours because our entire world system is lies piled on top of lies. And if lying ceased, everything that we know would begin to disintegrate, although that'd be a great thing. But God says, you're you're people who are caught up in lies, and I don't want you to be that way, especially in the church, because when we tell a lie, Satan goes to work. He really digs in deep. And we may not see the consequences immediately, but ultimately they come out. And anyone who's controlled by lies, according to Scripture, is lost. Now, hedge on the word controlled, because this next verse I'm about to show you from the book of Revelation has a very, very serious warning. Look with me up on the screen. Revelation 21.8. For the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We've got to own that because it says that throughout the Bible, not just in Revelation. It's pretty tough stuff to hear at 11.47 in the morning, isn't it? That's hard. Now, here's the truth of this passage. It's talking about habitual liars, people whose entire life is characterized by lie after lie after lie, meaning that they're showing no fruit the deceitfulness is part of who they are. Uh, the truth is, a believer can fall him, find himself falling into deceit. We can find ourselves falling into sin. But if a person's life is habitual lying, lie on top of lie in order to defend themselves and hide the truth, we know that that person has no biblical basis for believing that he's a Christian according to what Scripture says because a Christ-controlled life is a life that's controlled by truth. And you notice that Paul gave a reason for why we're supposed to tell the truth to each other? He says it right there, because you belong to each other. He says, you're members of one another. So I affect you. You affect me. So we're going to be honest with each other. We live in the truth that's patterned in Jesus. So he goes one step further, and he says in verse 25, to lay aside the falsehood. Now, I gave you the imagery for that last week when we talked about an individual who might be working in the field all day long, and at the end of the day, they're hot and they're sweaty, and so they peel off their clothes, they throw it aside so they can step into the shower just to get clean. Well, they've laid aside the dirty old stuff. That's the same image that's being used here. It's used again specifically in Scripture when a young man was murdered. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is thrown into a pit, and he's about to be stoned by the people of the community. And we're told that as the Pharisees and the self-righteous Jews walked up to him and saw him in the pit, before they stoned him, they took off their clothing and laid it at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul. It's the exact same phrase. They peeled off their clothing. Why? So they would be free to throw the rocks really, really hard. Well, that same imagery of using that word that way means to shed ourselves 
of the things that hold us back. So here in a positive sense, we're, we're laying aside falsehood and taking it off so that we're free to do righteous work. We're free to do the things that God has called us to do. Now, before I move on to verse 26, I just want to emphasize one thing. Telling the truth does not require you telling everything that you know. See, Scripture doesn't really call us to dump the card on someone. And, and keeping the truth is not in conflict with keeping a confidence. We have to really gauge in the midst of our conversations when too much information is too much information. Let's move forward to verse 26. Be angry and, do not, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Now, I know this one's not for you because you never get angry, right? So just lean to the person next to you and tell them you're taking notes for them, all right? Okay, because you, you, you never have anger in your life. Know this, in itself, anger is not a sin. God shows anger. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament is hanaf, for anger, for the anger that's associated with God. And it literally means a flaring of the nostrils. A person who's so caught up in the passion, they breathe so hard, their nostrils actually flare. That word is associated with God's anger in the Old Testament because the passion is so real. We see that same kind of passion when God enters the temple. Jesus, the Son of God, enters the temple and cleanses the temple of the money changers that are in there. There's even a more real image than that one. I want to take you to a, a, a passage from Mark chapter 3. It's a Saturday, so it's, it's Shabbat. In the Jewish calendar, Shabbat is, is Sabbath, and, and that's when the Jews worship together. So Jesus walks into a synagogue on Shabbat, and he looks across the room, and he sees a man whose arm is not only withered up, his hand is curled. He has no use of his arm. And Jesus makes eye contact with him, and he makes eye contact with Jesus, and Jesus moves towards him. And in the midst of the movement, he stops because there's a group of Pharisees standing over here. Sorry, Ken, I didn't mean to point at you. You're not the Pharisee. Okay. So that there's a group of Pharisees off to the side, and Jesus, in the midst of the conversation, turns and looks at the Pharisees, and says, is it better to do good or evil on Shabbat? Now they have no response to him because they're seething with anger inside. They really, really don't like Jesus. And so Jesus, in response to the hard-heartedness of their heart, he walks right up to the man and says, stretch out your hand. Look with me up on the screen at this passage. Mark chapter 3, verse 5. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. See, God has righteous anger. He was so angry at the hardness of their heart. So we're told that there's a qualification here to our anger. Verse 26 says, be angry with this qualification, yet do not sin. Now, that's a really hard thing to do. Now, this word that's used here, anger, uh, you'll see it in your notes this morning. If you opened up your bulletin, there, there's the Greek words in there. You won't see this one on the screen. Um, this particular word doesn't have to do with a momentary explosion or a boiling over in a heat of the moment, but rather this is a, an anger that's deep-seated. 
and is part of it just a really determined, settled conviction. Where does that come from? Righteous indignation. When you see in your school system, or you see in your workplace, or you see in society at large, things that you know go against the nature and the character of God, you have a right, according to Scripture, to have a righteous indignation at that kind of evil. Anger that's done against the Lord and against His purposes. As a matter of fact, Scripture says there's three stages to anger. Biblical anger. Let me show them to you. Uh, the first stage the Bible speaks of is anger that's kindled. And it comes out of Genesis. We see it there, first of all, because there's an anger that just begins to spark. And, and it's controlled. The, the next phase of it is called malice. And it's an anger that just kind of smolders under the surface. And, and the third stage to it is what we call wrath, or when we think of the wrath of God. And it can suddenly burst open and destroy everything in its path. Now, it is very, very difficult for you and I to practice anger, holy anger, without sin. And that's why Paul puts that admonition on there. Be angry and yet do not sin. Why? Because we don't have the knowledge God has. God knows everything. God sees everything. He knows how to react. We don't always know all the circumstances. So Paul adds one step further in verse 26. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Meaning, don't take it to bed with you. Why? You're likely to give Satan an opportunity in your life. Because this is what I know about anger. Anger has a strong tendency to fester. And it will grow and it will take control of your life. So you've got to deal with it immediately. And so Paul's telling you, confess it. Give it to God. Offer your anger, whatever the situation is, up to him. Let him deal with the circumstances or perhaps the person that you have the anger against. That's why he says in verse 27, do not give the devil an opportunity. Now, as I read that, I think, how can I give Satan an opportunity in my life? I'm a believer. Opportunity for what? Well, here's the truth. The ruler of this world was defeated by Christ at the cross, right? Okay, you don't sound like you believe it. The ruler of this world was defeated by Christ at the cross, right? Okay, so if that's the truth, we know that he's been defeated. However, he does not surrender without a struggle. You're going to especially see that in Ephesians chapter 6 when we get into spiritual warfare. Satan does not surrender without a struggle, and he continues to make his powerful influence felt in our lives and the lives of unbelievers. So when he finds a believer with a spark of anger, he fans it into flame and he adds fuel to the fire and he uses it for his own purposes and damage ensues. So scripture gives us a solution. Romans chapter 12 talks about a solution to anger in your life. It says this in verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, I really appreciate the fact that he added verse 18 when it says, if, if possible. Can you identify with that? Do you have an irregular person in your life? Uh, they might be sitting next to you, so don't raise your hand, okay? So, if, if possible, Paul adds that qualifier, so far as it is possible within you. Meaning, you might have to keep your distance from some people, even some believers. Some people who you just don't always see eye to eye with. So, if possible, 
Step back from that situation. Let's move forward because now we've seen lying, we've seen anger, and now he's going to talk about stealing. And remember, he's talking to the church. Verse 28, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so he will have something to share with the one who has need. Coming right out of the Ten Commandments again. This is commandment number eight. You shall not steal. And when God gave that commandment, he instituted the right of private ownership of property. A man has a right to turn his strength into gain and use it as he sees fit. So God gave some laws for the protection of your property, of the things that you own. And those principles have become the fabric of our law today. But in Paul's day, stealing was so commonplace, especially among the pagans and among the slaves who now made up this church in Ephesus, Paul's writing to these new believers and saying, hey, speak the truth, don't lie. Don't be consumed with anger. Stop stealing. Why? Because in the slave situation, nobody's watching out for them. There's no law that's protecting them, and they're always in need. So Paul's reminding them, hey, that's your old self. That's who you used to be. Put on the new self. You've got this inclination to steal, to lie, to be angry. Put on the new self. Put away that old stuff. And do you notice that there's a motivation to each one of these admonitions? And we're talking about walking in holiness here. What's the motivation? Tell the truth because you're members of one another. Control your anger. Why? Because you don't want to give opportunity to Satan. Number three, work and not steal because you want to share with the one who has need. So what Paul has done here is he's lifted human labor to a really, really high level to the degree that when we work, we work for a purpose that we might be able to help others who have need. So Scripture talks very strongly to this, especially to men who provide for their families. Look with me up on the screen. 1 Timothy 5.8, it says this, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So what I'm told here is if you have a desire to earn more, you've got a purpose in that. And your purpose is that you're able to give more. So beyond providing for your own family, beyond all of that, we gain so that we can give. So he's nailed down these three components so far. Let's see where he's going next. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Now, what I understand is my heart and my mouth are connected. Sometimes I feel like my foot and my mouth are connected. Maybe you have that problem. But what we're told is our heart and our mouth are connected. Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is real practical stuff, isn't it? Paul's really nailing down the day-by-day stuff. What are, you, what, what are we expecting when we see a change in someone? Well, is it reasonable to think that if someone becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, we should expect to see over the course of their life, maybe even instantly, a change in their speech? When, when a person becomes a believer, should you expect to see a change in the things that they talk about? I'll ask it this way. Can Christ make a difference in a man's speech? So as a sinner, our mouth, according to Romans chapter 3, is full of blessings and curses. 
we use the mouth for the same thing. James 3 wrote about this. James said in chapter 3, how can it be that a man can confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father, and yet with that same mouth come curses and bitterness? It ought not to be, is what he wrote. Well, that's what Paul's really hedging on here. We've got to see a change in the heart so that we see a change in the speech. And we're talking about more than just a phrase here. Um, I digress for just a moment. Hear me on this. There's a phrase that's common among a certain generation of people today, and, and the phrase really bugs me, but I hear it quite common. The phrase is, holy crap, okay? Now, only God is holy, okay? Just so we get that part down right. So only God is holy, so crap can't be holy, right? Okay, so just bear with me on this. I missed it. <laughs> Sherry said something out loud. Now you don't want to say it again. Okay, so just hear me on this. Holy, holy crap, all right? That's a phrase, and it doesn't really represent what a person thinks because nobody in their right mind really thinks crap is holy, right? Okay, so that's not the case. They don't really think that, but they just use that phrase. So it's not really speaking out of the abundance of the heart. It's just something that flies off the lips. What Paul's really writing about here is something that's more than just what flies off the lips, but the content of what's coming from deep within. So forgive me why I digressed on that one, okay? Just hear me on this. This word, sapros, that's used with unwholesomeness represents more than just casual phrases that we use. Look at the definition. It's the only Greek word you're going to get on the screen this morning. The word sapros has to do with something that's rotten and worthless and corrupt. And here's how it was used. In the first century, when someone would go to the market and they would buy for the day their fruits and their vegetables and their meat, things that they needed to sustain their family, if they came to a certain counter where there were vegetables stacked up and they wanted to buy those things, there was always a side of the counter where spoiled fruit or vegetables was placed before it was tossed into the garbage, literally onto the garbage heap. That was known as the sapros vegetables. It was especially applied to meat. Have you ever smelled a piece of meat that's gone bad? Have you ever gone into a home, perhaps, maybe where there was some renovation taking place and someone accidentally unplugged a refrigerator and they didn't remember there was meat inside and days have gone by? So Lori and I went on vacation a few years ago and um, um, when we were gone, there was a power outage and I had a chest freezer full of venison. Yeah, you're getting the picture, right? So we had been gone two weeks the power outage occurred on day one. Yeah, okay. So when we opened the door, the entire house reeked of death. I thought Lazarus had died inside our house because it stinketh. It was so nasty. It just permeated the air. That's sapros. That's the word that Paul's using here. Dead, rotten, spoiled meat. So we're talking about foul language, things that are totally out of the character with the newness of life. So we're talking about off-color jokes, vulgarity, profanity, dirty stories, every form of corrupt talk because a foul mouth comes from a foul heart. And Paul's saying, hey, you're the kinos katissus. 
You're the new creation, the original formation. You've got to walk so that you look like what God says that you are. It's true of you. So this comes from Colossians 3.8, but I wanted you to see it this way. This is the way this writer phrased it. But you, now, now you also, put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Pretty strong admonition. So Paul didn't stop there. In verse 29, what you notice is he said the things you're not supposed to do, but he went to the things that you should be doing. The things that are good for edification, for the need of the moment, for grace. So I broke it out into three points. The, the three types of conversation that you're going to have. The first one, you're going to see it on the screen, is that which is good for edification. Meaning, you're going to be building up people. You're going to be constructive in their life, instructive, encouraging, and uplifting Words that are spoken by a wise man, says the book of Proverbs, are like a nail well-driven without denting it or bending it over. As a matter of fact, Scripture says that we need to have appropriate language. The second one is, according to the need of the moment, not always necessarily great words, but appropriate for the need of the moment, constructively contributing. The best way to explain this for you is to give you the counterbalance I know of a, a pastor, a, a very young pastor, who went to see someone who was in the hospital that had just had a heart attack. And the man was still in the ICU unit, and um, his prognosis wasn't great, but it wasn't bad. And the young pastor sat down next to him and, and said, so what are they telling you? How are, how are you doing? How are you progressing? And he said, well, it's, it's not real good. Um, I might have to have surgery. I'm not sure yet. And without hesitating, the pastor said to him, well, better you than me. Yeah, you're looking at him, okay? Yeah. Inappropriate for the moment, would you say? Okay. Would you say foot in the mouth? Remember the thing I just described? Okay, this is going back years ago, but I just thought I was being humorous with him. But in the moment when his eyes blinked open wide, I realized uh, that didn't connect real well. Okay, so that's, that's the inappropriate side. So we, we don't always have to have great significance to what we say, but Paul's saying, according to the need of the moment. Grandma used to say, if you can't say something good, don't say something at all. Okay, you just hold it to yourself. So there's times when you've got to hold back the raw truth. Well, it was true that he's better to have the surgery than me, but I didn't need to say it, right? Okay, okay, so you, you got that down. So Scripture goes on to say, Proverbs 25, 11, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in the right circumstances. Have you seen that image before? A silver bowl on a dining room table filled with apples. That's a beautiful image that, Paul, that, that Solomon gave when he wrote that in Proverbs. That's how good a word properly spoken is. So the next thing is, the number three, he said also that we're supposed to be gracious when we speak and, and that it might give grace to those who hear. Why? Because our God is a God of grace. And it's inappropriate for Christians to not speak with grace. We are supposed to characterize God the Father. He speaks with grace. And there's a really powerful motivation for all of these things that we've been looking at. You'll see it in verse 30. He says, I want you to put all these things off because if you're not putting them off, you're grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Look with me at verse 30. First, before we get to, the, to that verse, think this way. The Holy Spirit is a person. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit can be insulted. The Holy Spirit has feelings. The Holy Spirit can be blasphemed. 
So the Holy Spirit can grieve, we're told here. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So all sin is painful to God, right? All sin is painful to God. So we know that the Holy Spirit of God weeps when Christians lie versus speaking the truth. The Holy Spirit of God grieves when we become unrighteously angry versus righteously angry, and when we steal instead of sharing, and when we speak corruptly instead of uplifting words. We're told, according to this passage, we can hurt the Spirit of God. So whatever violates the will of God grieves the third person of the Trinity. And grieving can lead to something. Grieving leads to quenching, according to 1 Thessalonians. You can quench the Holy Spirit. And what is that? You're going to forfeit the power and the blessing of God in your life. Now, the Holy Spirit, according to verse 30, will not and cannot leave you. You've been sealed. Do you see that in verse 30? He says, you've been sealed until the day that Christ returns. So we're not talking about losing your salvation. We're talking about someone who, because of their sin actions, can lose the joy of their salvation. You grieve the Holy Spirit of God, you can forfeit the blessing of God's power in your life when you bring grief to Him. So verse 31 begins to sum it up. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Bitterness is the most advanced form of hostility. It's a a root that just poisons the inner man. It's something that someone does to us that we don't like and we harbor it and we keep it down deep and it begins to destroy I read this week of a pastor who was counseling a couple who wanted to get married. And an elderly man came into his office. And he said, uh, Pastor, I'd like you to perform a wedding ceremony for myself and um, this woman that I want to marry. And the pastor said to him, well, would you bring her in to my office? I'd like to meet her and talk with her so we can get to know each other. And he said, I'll do that. But before I do that, I'd like to tell you what's going on here. He said, the circumstances are this. We've each been married before, 30 years ago, to each other. And he said, because in the early years of our marriage, we fought and we bickered and we said some things that we didn't like, we separated and we held a root of bitterness. And he said that bitterness led to divorce. And we were both too proud to ever apologize to each other. And he said, we lived 30 years alone. We never married anyone else. We never had any other relationships, and recently we've reconnected and apologized to each other. So what we're asking is for the grace of God that we could live the remaining years of our life in happiness together because we've dealt with the bitterness. What goes on with bitterness? It destroys homes. It wreaks havoc in friendships and churches. It just crumbles it. So what Paul's putting his finger on here directly he thumps it right on the chest and he says the reason for this is the inability to forgive that's the root cause when you go into verse 32 you see it verse 32 says this be kind to one another tender-hearted forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you being unconditionally kind that's who God is he says that's who I am that's my character so I like to say this to people when I see them carry on godly actions I like to say I see Jesus in you because what we're told right here is when we're kind and tender-hearted and forgive each other we're doing things just like Jesus would do it's the nature of Christ in you here's here's the best way to understand this this 
concept of tenderheartedness. This is what I'll close with. There's a story in Scripture in the New Testament in which Jesus is walking with a large mass of people towards a city. And the people that are following him don't realize that there's another large crowd just on the other side of a city wall who are coming in the exact same direction. And they're on opposite sides of the corner of the city. And at that moment, the two crowds run right into each other. And there's Jesus in the middle of it facing a woman who's walking alongside her son's coffin. Her, her young son died. And she's grieving. And she's mourning. And the crowd that's with her is grieving and mourning. And Scripture says, not that Jesus rose, raised him from the dead in that moment. The very first phrase that comes out, it says, Jesus feeling splagnizomahi which is compassion. Jesus in that moment looked upon the mother and felt compassion for her. That's the tender-heartedness we're talking about here. Splagnizomahi, it comes from the gut. And that's the Greek word that's associated in your notes this morning. It literally means you hurt so badly for someone, it actually affects your physical presence to the degree that it makes your stomach hurt and you can't but help forgive them. Why? Paul said because Christ has forgiven you. Anybody here recognize that this morning? You've had that forgiveness in your life? And so you recognize it's my responsibility to extend forgiveness to others, to be kind, to be tenderhearted. That's what he's telling us here, this really, really practical stuff. The same thing that the Ten Commandments were to the Jews being transferred over to the church today, saying, hey, here's the practical way to live out your walk so that you look like who you say you are. Here's how I'm going to close. This is Colossians 3.1. I invite you just to close your eyes. Let me read this verse to you, and then we're going to pray together. Colossians 3.1 says this, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above not on the things that are on earth. Father, we recognize that in our own ability, we are incapable of living this out. So it requires the presence and the power and the authority of your Spirit over our lives. We would all recognize individuals whom we know that are consumed with lying or consumed with anger or perhaps even thieves or those who speak inappropriately. God, let that not be true of us. That we would be a people who would be known to be walking of the, worthy of the manner by which we've been called. That you have redeemed us. That you have destined us. You've given us an inheritance. So Father, help us in the midst of our weakness. Because you said in our weakness you're strong. In the midst of that, strengthen us. Father, I ask specifically for this group gathered here in this service that this week when we feel the temptation to lie, when, when we feel the temptation to lose control of our anger, when we would inappropriately use words that would cause damage, help us to check ourselves in the midst of that moment and contrast what we're about to do to what you've called us to. Not that that earns us salvation, Father. We recognize that. 
but that you move us more to the likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name that we pray, amen.